Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read for you from verses 15 and 16, and then 23 through 31. So hear now the word of the Lord. But the Lord said to him, him being Ananias, go, for he, he being Saul, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then down to verse 23. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him, Saul, to death. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall, lowering in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus So he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And they were talking, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was having peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord. And in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it continued to multiply. May the Lord bless his word. Well, we come now to a very clear shift for this man, Paul. An enemy of Christ to now a preacher of Christ. A child of wrath to now a child of God. Dead in sin to now alive in Christ Jesus, under the curse of the law to now a recipient of the new covenant, blind to the glory of Christ to now eyes that see him and long for him, helpless in his sin to now a chosen instrument in the hands of God, an enemy of Christ now to slave to Christ, one who was seeking his own Righteousness through the law to now a man who is righteous through faith in Christ. He was a blasphemer of God. Now he is a faithful teacher and preacher of Christ. He was a man committed to the causing suffering for those who follow Jesus Christ to now a man suffering. 
for the name of Christ. I want to state straight up front right now here so that you will hear it before perhaps your mind begins to wander that suffering is a part of the call of discipleship. Suffering is not something unique. Suffering is not something that indicates you're doing wrong. It is actually a part of discipleship. Rather, I would argue quite strongly that the lack of suffering is what would be unique. If you doubt me, just hear the words of Jesus where he made this clear when he spoke to his disciples. These are words all of you have likely heard, but sometimes what we do is we pretend we didn't hear them. Hear now what Christ says in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone, notice how broad that is, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Notice how absolute that is. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Those are very clear words and, frankly, very sobering words. But they are words I believe today we ought to hear. And just in case he wasn't clear enough in those words, let me read some more from our Lord, this time in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Christ again says, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who will not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, a Christian is, by definition, a cross-bearer. A question to you up front is how often, though, in your evangelism is that brought out? How often in your evangelism is that kind of wording included? Compare that type of words from the lips of our own Lord to the famous tract that so many of us grew up with, which states, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. The night before our Lord was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover, and during that time instituted what we just celebrated, the Lord's Supper. He is literally hours from the betrayal. He is hours from a fearsome beating, a horrid death. His heart is heavy with the reality of the sin that shall be laid upon him as the fitting sacrifice. So what are the disciples doing? Well, they're arguing. They're arguing with one another as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so instead of finding comfort with his disciples, he has to instead reprove them and instruct them once again during this very dark time in his life. And it was at that point then that he looks at dear Peter, 
And he tells them that Satan has sought permission to uh, sift him like wheat. But fortunately, Jesus says that he has already interceded for uh, uh, Peter so that he will not fall away. So what does Peter say? Does he say thank you? Does he silence his lips so that he might ponder these words? No, that's not Peter. He does what we do. He opens up his mouth and starts speaking stupid things. He says, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You will deny me. You will not die for me. The sermon today is one of those that's hard to preach because it's too often that we find that those of you here who are listening will try to insert yourself where you don't belong. You'll be like Peter and you'll be too quick to speak. You'll be too quick to assure yourself. You'll be too quick to settle things down and calm things down. This is a sermon, beloved, that you ought to just hear. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just hear it. And then ponder it. I would ask that you would let it wash over you, let it flow through your soul, because it's not a sermon on data. It's not a sermon designed to pump you up. In fact, it's a sermon, my desire is, that it will slay you in such a way as to bring much glory to God. For if the Holy Spirit is pleased, I believe it will move you to finally begin to stop, think, pray, and simply wonder. Because we are all more like Peter than we want to admit. In our, eye, uh, our minds, we, we will do many things for him when the opportunity arises. We will be faithful. We will do this. We will do that. We will, we will go to prison for him. We will die for him. Very seldom in our minds do we think we would deny him. And yet, we do find that it's rather difficult to just simply follow him in the many small things that maybe we're being called to do right now. And so my desire for you as we go through this sermon is to simply hear it and then take heed because if I am right, the time of suffering is coming soon. Now I'm going to talk about suffering, but I want to make some clarifications for you. The suffering that we will be talking about today is not a suffering due to sickness or financial hardships or family problems. That's not the suffering we're talking about. We're not talking about the suffering that comes because of discipline from the hand of God, like Hebrews 12 brings up. It is most certainly not suffering because you did foolish and wrong things. Rather, this suffering that we are looking at is suffering specifically for the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is connected to being identified as a man or woman who follows Jesus as Lord over all things. 
So I, I don't want you to try to fit one of those other sorts of sufferings that I have no doubt some of you are enduring. I don't want you to try to fit that into the sermon and make that be what I'm talking about, because it's not. I'm asking you to consider what it looks like to suffer simply because you follow Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that, you will miss the points, and I don't think it will be then of help. So we're going to do nine lessons from the suffering of Saul. Nine lessons I gleaned and I think will be of help to us in the life of Saul. Very first lesson is in verses 22 and 23, and that is that suffering is not something for later in life for the believer. Suffering is not something for later in life for the believer. Now, how long has this point has Saul been a Christian? He's just been a Christian a few days. That's it. Just he's a baby Christian. He's so baby, it's crazy how young he is in the faith. But Jesus is now telling Ananias in verses, uh, what was it, uh, 15 and 16, that he must show him how much he would suffer for the name of Jesus. Right off the bat, here's Jesus, here's what it means, he's your Lord, come, bow, follow, believe. Oh, and by the way, and I will tell you now, right off the bat, you will suffer for my name's sake. In other words, suffering and the message of suffering is not advanced theology. It's not something that we push down for a little later once a person's got his feet under him, once a person is a little bit more mature in the faith that we now can let him know, oh, by the way, and you'll suffer. It is part and parcel of the young Christian's life. So it's not advanced theology, it's actually basic theology. And now, only a few days later, we see here in 22 and 23 that it begins. Saul is increasing in strength. He's confounding the Jews. And now, many days, when many days had elapsed, the Jews are plotting together to put him to death. He goes from the guy who's bringing death to the one who's going to die I would tell you, or I I tell you, that this is something you must keep in mind as you share the gospel, because we tend to gloss over this when we are talking about the gospel. We tend to, to diminish what evil sin really is. We tend to diminish the idea that we are described as children of wrath, sons of disobedience, dead in our trespasses and sin, unable to please God, unable to... Seek for God, though the Bible explicitly states so. But we also tend to tend, uh, gloss over the fact that when we're sharing Christ and, and we tell the people the gospel, that we fail to tell them the cost. The fact is that they will suffer if they come to Jesus. It may not be where you start. It may not be your opening line, but it certainly must be there. It needs to be stated very clearly to anyone who is listening to you as you talk to them about faith in Christ. In fact, I have made it my habit. I think it's a good and wise thing to emphasize this whenever I evangelize. Some of you have been with me as I've done this. And I do it at the point where I start to see the person showing interest 
in the faith. When they start to look like they're, they're no longer just stumbling around and trying to guess, but as we meet and we talk about the gospel, we talk about what it looks like to follow Christ, and they start to seem to act like they might be open to this, I actually then will bring this to bear. I will talk to them about the reality of what it costs to follow Jesus. Because if they are moving toward that moment where they want to claim faith in Christ, I want to say it clear. I press hard then upon them. What does it mean to follow Christ? Because he he is either supreme or he will not be your savior. He demands your whole being, not merely a part of your being. He will not share you with anyone or anything. In fact, he calls you to then take up your cross and follow him. He makes, it, he makes no promise to fix your problems in this life. All he does is he calls upon you to seek to bring him honor in whatever comes your way. And it's interesting because once you do that and you bring that aspect out, it is not uncommon for many of those who seemed like they were showing interest to then draw back. And people might think, well, that, why would you do that? Well, why would Jesus do that when the rich young ruler comes running up to him, bows before him, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't get much more open than that. He said, well, keep these commandments. And he's like, well, I've done those since my youth. He's like, okay, one, just one more thing. You take all your money, sell it, get rid of all your possessions, give it all to the poor, and then come follow me. And of course, we know from the story that the rich young ruler with great joy did so, right? And it says that he walked away very sad because he was a very rich man. Did Christ fail? Was he wrong in pressing it that way? No, all he did was reveal to the man his own heart. The man wanted eternal life just as long as it didn't cost him anything. Christ says it will cost you everything. And if none of you, if I mean any of you in this room think that that's not true, you don't understand the Christian faith. It costs you everything. That's what Christ meant. He's like, if you try to save your life, what will happen? You'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, meaning all things now subsume themselves under Christ as Lord, he says you will save it. In the same way, I have learned how often suffering, especially the suffering for the name of Christ, has a very good, hard, separating effect on professing Christians. In fact, I've gotten to a point that I no longer can count the number of men and women I've known who have abandoned the faith because of suffering. So, beloved, let's hear the words of Peter now, years later, as he writes 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and he says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though 
a strange thing has happened. He says, don't be shocked. Why are you surprised? Why do you think this is not right? So many Christians today, I think, struggle because they don't understand that suffering is a key part of the life of the Christian. And so I would encourage you as we enter into the sermon that you might consider burning that verse, 1 Peter 4.12, upon your heart so that in your day of suffering, you might bring it to remembrance. That's the first lesson. What's the second lesson? Suffering is directly tied to the proclamation of the gospel. We're going to stay in verses 22 and 23 for a little bit for a few lessons. Saul is out there proclaiming Christ. He is telling the Jews he is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, meaning the one the Old Testament prophesied and promised would come and that they would, he would make all things right and they were to come and follow him. Christ came. They murdered him. He rose again. He's coming back. This is what Paul is driving home to all the Jews, is the very one that they were waiting for and claiming that they would receive when he came, did come, and they rejected him. You see, this sort of suffering is not because you are showing love for others. It's not because you're loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, though you're commanded to do that. It's not because you have been a man showing mercy and your lips are full of grace and winsome. All of those should be true. But it's not because you're doing all these kind things. The problem is, is that suffering comes because you believe, and then because you believe, you are telling others that the way of salvation is found in only Jesus Christ that there is no other way by which a man or woman could be saved from the wrath that is to come. And so it's connected to judgment. It it means that you uh, give the gospel, you are saying that they need this because they are under God's judgment, they are objects of God's wrath, and that only in Jesus Christ will there be life and forgiveness. It's connected to your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, it it may be big, it may be small, but if you are a Christian, truly a Christian, then there's something uniquely different about you from everyone else. It's just simply different. The people around you will react to that fact. And frankly, I think that what happens is that you know this, And so you try to suppress that. In fact, you might find that that's one of the reasons why you find it actually easier not to talk about Jesus, because you know what would happen. You know that if you opened up the can of worms called the gospel with your family members, what's coming your way? You know that if you were to bring that up to your in your workplace, what would come your way? You know if you spoke to your neighbors or whoever it is that where God has placed you, you know the cost. Now, understand, I'm not saying you go out there and you be an absolute jerk and not do your job, but I am saying that if you are silent so that no one knows that you are a man or woman of 
follows Christ, then you are not faithful. But the real reality is that most people don't because they know what's coming. Because of the name of Jesus, because of the gospel, there is a cost. What I will tell you is this. If you are truly a Christian, that you will find that at some point in your life, and it will be most inconvenient, I promise you, Christ will disrupt that. He will just put you in a situation where the line is drawn in the sand and you are there and you realize, oh, it's come. Where you have a choice. I will deny him or I will follow him. Beloved, following Christ is never a thing you do undercover. Your lifestyle and your choices will inevitably Force the issue. And you must own that and be prepared. And you must accept the fact that at some point, as you own that, that it will bring suffering. Third lesson, verse 23, is that suffering is often from the religious people. It was the Jews who were doing this. Now, you probably don't know this, but perhaps you do. When you hear the word the Jews, it's usually talking about religious leaders in the New Testament. It's not just your average guy. It's it's the, the people who should know better. The religious people. Saul was numbered among the Jews. These are the men whom Saul used to walk with and fellowship with and, and talk to. These were the guys that would sit around and have a meal together while they discussed various points of theology. These are the ones who knew that he was coming to persecute those stupid, foolish Christians, and they were happy for it. And now they're going to persecute him. So often this seems to come as a surprise to people, but it ought not. The average person is not going to be the problem in your life. It's usually the religious person. That can come from your Catholic friend or your Protestant friend. That can come from your Buddhist or your Hindu or or the atheist, which is his own type of religion. You'll be amazed, though, at the people who seem very firm and sincere about their, their religion and their faith, and then you'll bring to bear Christ and everything becomes different. It's because the religious person who is, is the one who's working so very hard to earn whatever type of salvation they have in their mind they ought to earn. And you come in and dismantle that with the proclamation of Jesus. And this is where it comes. Uh, the anger comes because the gospel doesn't allow you to add Jesus to your shelf of gods and beliefs. Rather, he asks, in fact, demands that you dismantle the shelf and burn it all. He is not an add-on. He is not an upgrade. He is Lord. He demands you to bow before him now or in the day of judgment. But you will bow. I've said this countless times to people. Sat in the living room with a man. 
I said, do you understand? Because he was a, a man who was abandoning the faith, and we met to, went to meet with him. I said, do you understand that this is what the Bible says about who he is? Yes. And do you understand what it says about those who walk away and deny this? He said, yes. Do you understand that the Bible says that on the day of judgment that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Yes. And you want to abandon him here and now? Yes. And then I said these words. I said, I won't say his name. You, some of you know who he is. I said, as a human, you are not my enemy. But you are an enemy of Christ. And you will suffer that for the rest of your eternity. There is no middle ground. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man shall see the Father but through me. You tell the religious man, you tell the religious woman that their prayers, their works, their offerings will not matter one bit, and you see what will happen. Tightly attached to that is lesson four in verse 23. As I said, we're going to spend some time in those two verses. Suffering also is often will come from those who were once your people, your tribe, your friends. This is simply building off the prior point about the religious people, but these religious people were Saul's people. These were the people he hang, would hang with. So what about you? Who are your people? We all have people that we identify with that we seem to have more in common with. Uh, you might be, if you lived especially in California, you might be the skater dude or you belong to this gang, or you were a Harley rider. Maybe it's that you identify yourself with the people who are fishermen or, or the people who are shoppers. Maybe it's those who love decorating. You could be a soccer man, mom, or a baseball dad. Maybe it's a businessman or a laborer, blue-collar, white-collar. College-educated, self-educated, I don't care. You have your people. We all have people. It doesn't matter. For wherever you find your life to be situated, whoever are your people, so to speak, it is from that group that you are called to be a missionary. This is the whole purpose of Missio Dei Fellowship. I do believe that some of you who have come from other churches have not yet figured this out in your own mind, and, and the elders want to press this home to you. Missio Dei Fellowship does not exist so you have a place to come and worship. Missio Dei Fellowship exists so as to equip you that you might go back into your people and bring the gospel to them. That's why we exist. It is not to create comfort. It is actually to build you up in the face so much that you will enter into a life of discomfort as you bring the gospel. It 
And you will find that as you go back among those people who were actually once your people, and that you still share certain interests and pleasures, that nonetheless, you are called to bring to them the Christ. And what will happen, beloved? What will happen when you sit down with your fishing buddy or your hunting buddy that you have been going hunting with for the last 25 years and you finally speak Christ to him? You know what will happen. That's the pain of following Christ. And you have to get it in your head that it's going to happen. There is just no way you cannot have it happen. Keep your finger here, but go back to Micah. Go back to Micah. Chapter 7. If you're not sure where that's at, get to Matthew in the New Testament, then go back just a few pages. It's not that many pages, probably about 10, 15. Old Testament, Micah chapter 7, 1 through 9. I want you to hear that, and then we'll go to a passage in Matthew. Listen to these words of Micah, because you'll hear them echoed again by our Lord. Micah writes, Woe, woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which my soul desires. Meaning, I'm out there as a prophet among these people, and I find no refreshment, no rest, no joy in my soul. Why? The Holy One has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a payment. And a great man speaks the craving of his soul. And so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. At that time, their panic will happen. Do not believe in the neighbor. Do not have confidence in a close companion from her who lies in your bosom, meaning your wife. Don't even trust her. Why? For the son treats fathers as a wicked fool. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Do not be glad over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I inhabit the darkness, Yahweh is a light for me. I will bear the rage of Yahweh because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and does justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. It's a, it's a wonderful passage, frightening one. Michael looks out as a faithful prophet to a people who do not love. And all he sees is the corruption of the heart and the way that people feed upon each other. 
he himself recognizes that part of this discipline of the coming exile and the encroachment of the enemies is due to his own sin, but he knows that his faith rests in God and that God will raise him up. But I want you to keep those words in mind and now go to Matthew 10. And it's a significant portion of Scripture. Please make certain you turn it. Whenever a teacher, pastor asks you to turn, you always turn. In Matthew 10, we're going to go from 16 all the way down to 40. I want you just to hear these words in light of the idea of suffering will come from those who were your people. Verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, why? For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. The brother will betray brother to death. Let me say that again. And brother will betray brother to death, and the father, his child, And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all. Why? Because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he might become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to both destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold? For an asarion or a cent or a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, because you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now listen carefully, beloved. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, 
a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your own household, very possibly will be the ones who will deny and serve you up? Remember early on how I said, don't insert yourself into a sermon where it doesn't belong, but to just simply hear? This is where we tend to do it. Not my home, not my children, not my wife, not my husband. We always think we're the exception. Beloved, suffering will come from your people. Number five, verse 24 We finally move on. I know we're still in those two verses, aren't we? Suffering can be to the point of death. This is fairly simple. We ignore it, but it's very simple. Suffering can be to the point of death. In fact, right now throughout the world, many Christians face that very threat and that reality. I can tell you one story. In Nigeria, the Boko Haram and the Fulani Muslims, those of you, there's a few of you that went to uh, Cameroon with me many years ago, and you'll remember when we were out in the bush driving that we got held up by sometimes a, man, a few men driving the cattle along the pathway, and, and they were taking them eventually to the market. Those were Fulani Muslims. That's what they do. They're up in the northern part of Cameroon, which is right next to Nigeria, and they're wreaking havoc on the Christians there. I can tell you of one story of a young 13-year-old uh, girl. She is a Christian, and she was born into a Christian home, and so they gave her a Christian ho- a name. Those, again, that have been to Africa will appreciate it. Her name is Comfort. And the, Fula- I mean, the Boko Haram, uh, who were Muslim, uh, came in and were persecuting and harming the villagers who were believers here. Her father was taken outside, and they shot him four times with a rifle. He was dying. The mother came to him, gathered him to her lap, and she began to pray over him. And as she prayed, his last words were simply, Amen, and died. And yet that family, to this day, is still alive and serving Christ under the threat of death. That's not the exception. Our lives is the exception. My own translator and very dear friend, Demeke, in Ethiopia, he was a man much like Saul. He was literally a man looking to persecute Christians. He burned with hate. He sought their harm. He sought their death. God richly and wonderfully and miraculously, in many ways, saved him. So now, what is he? Well, now he's a pastor. 
preaching and teaching to the many suffering Ethiopians. And when I go there and I teach those pastors on how better to handle the word, he always introduces me to them and tells me their stories. And without almost any exception, they all bear the scars of following Christ. They have been tortured, imprisoned, beaten, burned. And it's so funny because I am far better trained than any of them or all of them put together, but I'm still a child in their midst. Here's Saul. He's a hater of Christians. And now he's a Christian. And the plotting begins. No rest, no so-called honeymoon given by God to this man. Rather, the cost of following Christ was brought upon him right away, and it followed him to the end of his life when finally his head was separated from his body, and he entered into the presence of the one who suffered and died on his behalf for his sin. And it's there that he is being comforted, until the day of, great res- of the great resurrection. But do not fool yourself. Do not lie to yourself that somehow you are the exception, that, that this will not come to you. On the other side, verse 25, another lesson is that suffering is something you can avoid, but you cannot compromise to avoid it. Do you get that second half? Suffering is something you can avoid. It's not wrong but you cannot compromise. The disciples found out that they wanted to put him to death, so they take him by night. They lower him down over the city walls in a basket. Later on in the story, he's now in Jerusalem, and now the Hellenistic Jews are looking to kill him. And so the brothers, in verse 30, learn of it, and they brought him down to Caesarea and send him away to Tarsus. They're like, go, go over there. Save your life. Don't ever think that you're supposed to go looking for suffering. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you, and I don't want you to say, Pastor thinks I should go find suffering. No, I think you should not. What I think you should do is preach Christ the suffering will just take care of itself. And there is no way around it. Well, there is. You deny him. Other than that, there's no way around it. Just speak of Christ. But if the opportunity comes and the suffering comes upon and you have the opportunity to avoid that without compromising, then avoid it by all means. So don't, don't miss that. You can flee. Christ himself even said, flee. So lesson six is that suffering is something you can avoid, but you must not compromise to avoid it. Lesson, or along with that, I want you to notice this. Number seven, suffering for the sake of Christ is something that will help confirm your faith of Christ, your claim of faith. 
I'll say that again. Suffering for the sake of Christ is something that will help confirm your claim of faith. All kinds of people claim faith. Notice in verse 26 that Saul is now suffering the consequences of what he used to be. He comes to Jerusalem. He's trying to associate with the disciples, and they're like, yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) I know you. I've heard of you. No, 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 you go somewhere else. That's, that's the consequences. Some of you still have that where you sin and things have in your prior life and, and the consequences linger. And so your choices have carried those consequences. And, and one of the marks of true repentance is that you don't get bitter and angry that people are like, we're not. No, we, no. Stay away. You, truly, if you're truly repentant, you embrace that. You accept this is, this is, I did this. I was the blasphemer and the man pursuing to harm Christians. Forgive and forget is a really wonderful sentiment, but it doesn't really work quite that way. Certainly in the days of persecution. When a persecutor of the church claims Christ, they will be and should be very carefully examined. In verse 27, Barnabas takes him, brought him to the apostles, recounts to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, that the Lord had talked to Saul, how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And in verse 29, they saw him suffering again to the point of being threatened with death. Your conversion, beloved, is not a private affair. We hear that all the time. Well, my faith is just very personal. No, it's not. It's very public. And if you think it's personal, you probably don't have it. That's why baptism is commanded, and it's a public thing. You publicly now claim, I have a new Lord. My Lord is Christ alone. For Saul, how was his faith confirmed? Through suffering. We find him wanting to go kill, and now he's People are seeking to kill him. So Barnabas kindly brings him to the apostles. And the examination really focuses on three things. His conversion story, the fruit of his conversion, that he was out boldly preaching Christ, and therefore the suffering that comes with it. So let me ask you this. I I don't want this to... I, I just want you to listen. Remember, that's all I'm asking you. Here's the challenge. What if Barnabas took you by the arm and brought you to the apostles? What would be the testimony he would share of your faith? What would he say about you? How would he speak of how you have heard the gospel? How would he speak of how you have boldly proclaimed the name of Christ? How would he describe your suffering for the name? 
Now, they don't have to be to the same extent. My question to you, though, is would he have anything to save? So many times we puff ourselves up into thinking that we're this or that. Suffering, beloved, in the Bible is described as, as this cauldron of heat and fire that burns away false faith until all that's left is that which is genuine. But it's always left. Whatever is left is that genuine faith, not the stuff we've lied to ourselves about having. That's for another sermon. Lesson number eight. Suffering should not silence the believer. Verses 28 and 29. Now he's been embraced by the church in Jerusalem. What a crazy time that must have been. So what does he do? Take rest and relaxation? No, he immediately goes back out into Jerusalem, the same place that he left to start this whole journey. He left Jerusalem to go find the Christians who had fled so he could get them in jail and deliver them over. Now he's right back. It's come a full circle, and now he's back, and he's preaching Christ. What you don't know probably right here is that Three years have taken place. You don't see it because Luke chose to not write this part in the book of Acts, but Paul talks about himself in Galatians chapter 1 that after he escaped over the wall, he went away to uh, Arabia, and there he was taught by the Lord himself for three years. And then he came to Jerusalem. So three years have gone by. And his reputation was still so great that nobody wanted him. Barnabas comes alongside him, brings him to the apostles. Now he's embraced, and now he's out there among all of the uh, Greek-speaking Jews, of which he also belonged, and he's telling them of Jesus Christ. Now, he's already had death threats, but it doesn't silence him. That's my point. Suffering does not silence you. You will actually find that what will happen is that God will empower you. I I use this example, uh, first service. I don't know how many of you have ever actually been in a fight. I mean, a real good fight, not, you know, playground stuff. But a lot of people are afraid of fighting. But oftentimes what shocks you, unless the guy's like really good, and he gives you a good liver punch, and you're down. The first punch really doesn't hurt you as much as it surprises you, because just the nature of how our bodies, we go kind of, it's after the fight that you hurt. And so it's that, but it's dealing with staying calm in the midst of the fight, thinking, maneuvering, all of that kind of stuff, and that is just a different thing. But so many people are afraid of fighting because they're afraid of getting hurt, But when you're in the middle of the fight, you're not thinking about getting hurt. You're just fighting. It's not uncommon after a a life or death struggle that you find out they have many injuries that you were not even aware of when they happened. But they're there simply because you're in the midst of the fight. If you're afraid of getting hurt or suffering by preaching Christ, you miss the point. You're going, to, you're going to suffer. You cannot avoid it, not if you're a genuine Christian. Just understand it will hit you and it will hurt, but it won't put you down. 
And you can't allow the fear of suffering to silence you. Last lesson. Suffering can be in one Christian's life and not others at any given time. In verse 30 and 31, the brothers learned of this, that they were again trying to kill him. They brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was having peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It continues to this day. Saul suffered right away, but much of the church at this time in that whole area, they're doing great. They're enjoying it. They're enjoying life. They're seeing God's kindness and mercies in their life. But understand that that's normal, very normal, that you might be the one suffering and others not. Every one of us has a path drawn for us by our Lord. Our our Heavenly Father has already ordained your days, and you can't make them longer or shorter, no matter what you think you can do. We are not called to worry about them. We're just simply called, again, to be faithful. In fact, you can no more fend off a God-ordained point of suffering than you can make an earthquake stop. So don't fret. Simply trust your Heavenly Father. And for some of you in this room, very possibly God has ordained great suffering in your life. And for others, not much at all. But you have no say in it. Instead, you're called to endure with patience and prayer the times of suffering and also to not envy those who are not suffering because that's what you and I do. How come he's not? How come he has, gets that? And don't tell me you don't do it because I've counseled enough people over the years as they're like, I don't know why, but they, they never have those troubles. But I also know because that's true of the apostles. When you suffer, don't be like Job who becomes bitter because it wasn't fair in his mind. When you watch a person suffer, don't be like Job's friends who tell him it's his fault. We don't have time, but John chapter 21, there's the story where Christ, about ready to ascend, he's with his disciples, and he tells Peter, this is how you're going to suffer and die. <laughs> you got to love Peter. So what does Peter say? He looks over at John. What about him? And what does Jesus say? I'll paraphrase. Mind your own business. Don't worry about what anybody else is going to do. All I'm attempting you to do is to grasp that sometimes you will suffer and others will not, and the other way around. So let me bring all this together with several quick, just few sentence uh, application. Envy works really common in our hearts and in, in, in some of the strangest of ways. But out of envy comes bitterness. 
As we look around, we wonder why us and not them and them. And that's just the reality of a Christian and the temptation. So let me give you some simple counsel. First of all, God has promised that though you might be like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, he will not extinguish you. You may feel like you're about ready to be extinguished, but if you are his, he will He will put his hands around you. You can suffer, but you will never to the point of extinction. Second, nothing brings you closer to understanding your Savior than suffering. In fact, in it, you are drawn closer to him than you ever were before. And it gives you the opportunity to marvel and to die to yourself as you then consider that he suffered in your place. Third, suffering teaches you to not cling to things that pass away, but only to hold on to what is eternal. In fact, it turns your hope from folly to the one true anchor for the soul, who is, of course, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Number four, you cannot truly know the peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians until you do sit under this sort of suffering. But when you are surrounded by this type of suffering and you entrust yourself with thanksgiving to your Lord, you will find a peace you didn't even know exists. Because he is ever faithful and truly sufficient. Fifth, when you find yourself weeping and fearful in the midst of this suffering, beloved, you can have full confidence that he hears you. And he understands your trembling words. In fact, he understands your prayer better than you yourself. Because he went before you. You're only walking the path he walked. It's not your path. It's his path. You're just invited to follow him. And lastly, you will find that he is truly sufficient for everything. Everything. And in that, you will find yourself thankful in a way you never thought possible. All that to say is suffering then, in this manner, for the name of Christ, is uniquely Christian. It is one of the key marks of being a follower for Christ. So in your time of suffering, give thanks. Be slow to speak. And beloved, take on a a posture of learning and you will do well. Let's pray. So, Father, hard words, important words, I hope, but hard words. I pray for the people as they go home and they talk. Guard their hearts from dismantling things that perhaps were uncomfortable. Build them up in the most holy faith. Allow them to perhaps encourage a brother or sister who is, in fact, suffering for their faith right now, that they might be a better friend indeed. Lord, in all of this, I pray that you would, again, set our mind upon Christ who went before us in all ways, that he is the one who not only is uh, the author of our faith, but he is also the finisher of our faith. All he asks us to do is to run the race, keeping our eyes on him, He'll take care of the rest. And Father, you've given us a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us like this man, Saul. 
So let us not fear, let us not fall away. Let us press on and encourage one another as we do so. I ask in your son's name, amen.